Welcome to the Tell Me More podcast. I am Pippa Scott, founder of Ride for Mental Health. Just a reminder to please tell your friends you love them. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Tell Me More podcast. Dosh Nicolaisen lives in Camden, New Hampshire, and is a professional gardener and former high school teacher. He holds a BA in English from Plymouth State University and a Master of Fine Arts in Poetry from Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia. He is a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet whose work has recently appeared or is further coming in Colorado Review, Red Rock Review, Poetry South, Bellingham Review, and elsewhere. Josh has been a snowboard judge for more than 15 years and has judged hundreds of events, including the Burton AM and protest series, the Vermont Open, North Face Park and Pipe, the Comp Cease and Desist, Last Call, and USASA Nationals. He is a snowboard coach at Holderness School and the New Hampshire Series Director of USASA and a technical advisor for U.S. Ski and Snowboard. You can find him at www.oldmangardening.com and on Instagram at nickel underscore I underscore zen. Gosh, how are you today? Doing well, Pippa. How are you? A little tired. It's snowing outside, so it makes me want to like crawl into my bed and watch some movies. It is snowing, but it, that was nice. It gave me the morning I needed. We got I I was at Loon this morning, and the snow was really great. I guess that is different if you can snowboard. I had knee surgery like a week and a half ago, so if I could snowboard, I think I'd be stoked. Yeah, that's a very different place to be in mentally, for sure. Yeah, but you guys went out at Loon this morning. How much snow did you get up there? I don't know. There's probably only three inches or so out there. Um, but I feel like they have the guns going full on there right now. And their snowmaking is just so good that it almost feels like real snow. So it was just, it was really good this morning. What's, what's the park setup looking like right now? Like, do they have both parks open or just one? Uh, just springboard right now, just the, the medium sized park, but it's super fun. Um, yeah, it was a really good time. Yeah, when I went to Holderness, I feel like my rail game was up a lot. Yeah, the rails at Loon are great. It was really yeah. fun. It was the first day all season I feel like I was landing rail tricks, so maybe that helps me be in a good mood today. <laughs> That's great. I definitely think that Loon's jumps are my favorite. I think that when they have the bigger park open, the line of like, like the first, uh, the lines all the way up to five are like, and then when it gets like seven, eight, like the bigger, the bigger jumps at the end, those sketch me out so much. Like when I'm at Copper and I ride the like pro line, like it's not like I'm scared of big jumps, but I am scared of Loon's bigger jumps. I don't know why, just like the takeoffs really get to me. Yeah, the takeoffs are huge and landings are not that big. The landings aren't that long. You have to really time them out. And I think that a lot of that just has to do with the conditions changing and like when conditions are optimal, you can just kind of point it between jumps and it's great. But how rarely do we have optimal conditions in New Hampshire? So you're just like figuring out the speed every day to like not knuckle or overshoot and die one way or the other. For real. I was having, when I was at Holderness, definitely I needed to work on rails because I'd spent so much time in Colorado. So it was like nice to try and like spend some time on rails. But I remember following someone into like the biggest jump at Loon and overshooting the wrap out of it and just being like there's no landings there's there's no landings <laughs> it does feel that way some days for sure <laughs> okay josh i want you to tell me like more about yourself i want like the listeners to like know your story and i just want you to like really give us like an insight of like who you are as a human being oh right on cool i grew up in southern new hampshire I am the oldest of four boys. I have three little brothers. I didn't snowboard until I was 11. I skied a little bit before that. Third, I guess I started snowboarding at nine, but really like lift service at 11. I got a black snow at nine and we had a lot of good local hills and like cemeteries and even my grandfather's backyard. So I, I got out there then. Now I'm 39. So I think it's been a while. It's been fun. Got two kids. I've got two daughters that are five and eight. They're a lot of fun. They're getting out snowboarding now, doing their school ski club with them on Fridays. It's a super good time. We go to Ragged. Um, 
yeah, I've got a little farm kind of going at home. We've got 15 chickens and some sheep. I've got a dog. Had goats before. That's about, yeah, I like mountain biking. I like whitewater kayaking. Okay, so you're more about like the simple things and you're really into nature. Yeah, I like being outside. I write a lot. You know, I, I do a lot of, with poetry. Finished my master's of fine arts in poetry, so I do a lot of writing there. Really trying to get my first book out, so I've got a project going there. I'm working pretty hard on. Um, What's it about? Am I allowed to like ask any questions about that? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, a lot of my like critical study in my master's program was around like looking at poets that that kind of interrogate traditional masculinity or visions of traditional masculinity. And I think a lot of my poems are kind of like in that vein and kind of a lot of stuff about childhood and boyhood and uh, what it looks like now from the other end, trying to be a dad. So that's what the book's about is like around your poetry and like sticking to that theme. Yeah, well, it'll, yeah, yeah. It'll be a book of poetry, but I think like most of the poems kind of like center around those types of things. That's super dope. I am like this year, I just really got into reading. I think it helps me kind of get out of my own brain. And I also really like writing too. I think I find like the same like kind of vibes in reading and writing, just that it really takes me out of like the situations that I'm in and it kind of just puts me into some other world. And so I think that's so dope you're writing a book and especially with how much you love, with how much I know that you love about poetry. It's like, I think it's, so sick that you're like taking that up oh thanks thanks pip that's really cool to hear um yeah yeah it's weird i'm an, i'm from a family where i'm the oldest of four boys but i'm definitely very different than the rest of my brothers um i'm i'm six feet tall and 200 pounds and i'm the smallest of them um everyone in my family is big you know they're big people they like donald trump and guns and big trucks and things like that and that's really not my vibe um so yeah, I think a lot of my book ends up like transcending that, like a lot of things about like not wanting to like go kill a lot of things or uh, not generally feeling strong enough or very tough and trying to figure that out, I think. Um, but yeah, I love what you said about just getting kind of sucked into the mindset of writing and how it kind of eats time. Um, because for me, I think that's where, where writing's become super, super important in my life especially during time of injury. So you should like think about that while you're sitting there with your knee maybe. But um, like it's, it's the only thing aside from whitewater kayaking, mountain biking and snowboarding that can completely pull me out of anxiety and worry and like just thinking about the general day to day. And it makes sense with those other three things because they're like full of adrenaline and, you, and it's like you're stoked to be in the moment and also you can get super hurt if you're not paying attention. But like writing doesn't have those stakes. Like the stakes are low. Like especially if you're not trying to show anybody it, you're just journaling for yourself or something. Like the stakes are so low. So to be able to find something that you can just like lose time in and feel happy about is. Yeah, I've read like I've only but yeah, I think I'm I'm on my second week and I've read like two books already. But I get really bored watching tv like I, I get really really bored i can't i can't do it but when i'm reading i can sit and read a book for like four hours i just i like definitely the eating time is something that i have been feeling a lot recently just because there's so much time in a day and there's only so much homework for me to do and i mean ride for mental health there's always stuff to do with ride for mental health but sometimes it just Ride for mental health can be really stressful. So I like being able to write and read books and stuff like that is, and not to be able to do a sport definitely just takes me kind of like out of my own element and just like puts me into someone else's world and just like calms me down, which is like, I think a lot of people find that in writing and reading too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great outlet. Yeah. So on the whole different, component what's your story for snowboarding like how did you start snowboarding yeah so i got that black snow thing for christmas probably in like fourth grade maybe and what's black snow ah oh, yes you're too young for that, <laughs> that like a walmart or target style snowboard with like really heavy crappy bindings very cheap plastic no base plates 
the snowboards, I don't know what they were made out of. Maybe metal, like the whole thing. I don't even know what they were. There were some that were all plastic. They were like, re- they were like really beginner things when snowboarding was coming into its own in like the early 90s. So yeah, we like all had those and we just shred them around local hills and stuff. So I got one of those and I wanted to start snowboarding then, but my family were, didn't ski or snowboard. And the only time I really got to go was with like the, the town ski club or like a church trip or a Boy Scout trip or something where I could like hop on a bus or a van and get to a mountain. And the ski club didn't allow you to go snowboarding until you were in sixth grade. You had to be in middle school. So I got, I had to keep skiing and even though I wanted to snowboard until I was in sixth grade. And that's when I got to actually like get lift surface snowboarding when I was like 11. And that was awesome. Yeah. And it was, it was great. I just kind of went when I could those same, with those same means until I got my license. And then the year that I was 16, I got a season pass to Pat's Peak in Henniker, New Hampshire. And I had one of those my junior and senior year of high school. And that was when I quit like all traditional sports. Like up until then, I had played some basketball and played on the golf team and and just was doing different things. And then I kind of got so into snowboarding and rock climbing and hiking and those things that I got my license and quit all of my traditional sports junior year. And I got that season pass to Pat's Peak and I was just ripping up there after school as much as I could. It was about an hour from my house. So it was hard to make it, you know, more than a couple times a week. But that was kind of the beginning of snowboarding, just getting out there with some friends. Uh, we'd go out and build hit. There was this huge old ski hill in my hometown that used to have a rope tow out of a cemetery. And we'd go up there and just build jumps and just try and huck backflips off of stupid jumps and land on our heads. And that was all, that was all great fun, like elementary and middle school, right up through high school. And then in high school, I went to, and then after high school, I went to Plymouth State and then like snowboarding became life and became culture. And it was just what we did. And so many of my best friends have come from snowboarding at Plymouth. Um, and those were some of the, some of the best years of my life. Absolutely. They were so much fun. And I still stay in touch with a lot of those guys and we ride when we can. Um, and I didn't leave. I kind of stayed in this area. I still live in Campton and I started, I worked at the Waterville Valley Ski Academy, um, teaching, uh, teaching English to ski and kids who were training for ski and snowboarding and kind of just stayed in the community that way. And then through judging and working in the shops, I worked in Lahoots for a while. I worked in the snowboard shack, uh, when Jared had the snowboard shack. Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of been a long time. And I took that all into officiating and judging and all of that. And that's like a whole nother community that's become huge and expansive and, and awesome. It's like this whole second family. Why do you continue to help with USA or USASA or what got you to start helping with them? I guess is like kind of two questions into one. Yeah, I think what got me into it was, you know, the Gouldemans needed some help. Um, I was friends with Chaz and with Aver. Aver's a really good friend of mine. And his parents were running the New Hampshire series. They ran it for 13 years and they needed some judging help. And I just got into it through that. And then after a couple of years of it, somehow I kind of became their right-hand person. I think maybe just because I was responsible, it showed up on time and did it with a smile. So I, I started helping, you know, with border cross races and alpine races. And before I knew it, I was helping with all of the events. Um, and then when Chaz was going to go to the Olympics, uh, his parents were thinking about going to Russia for that whole experience. And it was really going to make it hard for them to continue being a series director. And I had already been with them for five years and, and they felt like it was maybe time to hand it off. So I took the series over in 2013. It's been 10 years now. And it's fun, honestly. Like, I don't know how long I'll continue to do it, but it's a really good time. And it's all about watching kids smile and the high fives and the hugs and the things that sound corny, but they really make it awesome is to see people having fun and enjoying something that you've like put a lot of work into making happen. Yeah. And watching kids like struggle with hard times is just a wonderful thing. Watching them manage like stress in a healthy way, in a supportive environment, like at the top of the course. Um, Versus what some sports environments can sometimes look like. Like once in a while, we get that yelling parent out there, you know, do your backside nine. Why aren't you doing it on this icy, crappy day? 
Um, but that's a lot less rare maybe than going to a hockey game and what you might hear there, I feel like. And the environment of it all is really a lot of fun for me. Yeah. What is your opinion on the competition aspect of snowboarding? And normally when I like discuss this question with other people, it's that we like are comparing the street aspect of snowboarding and the competition aspect of snowboarding. But now I'm kind of thinking that it's more or less talking to you is like the competition aspect or just like the kind of like laid back and just like kind of getting out there. Like I feel like more because there's not a lot of street riding. I feel like in New Hampshire, I don't know. I feel like it's more based in Utah. Like the people that I've talked to about it are like Utah, Colorado. Obviously, there are some people that do it on the East Coast, but I feel like it's less popular. But so just like your opinion on like those two different ways that people take. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's great that there are different paths that people can do for themselves. And yeah, there's probably not a lot of people filming entire street edits on the east anymore i mean maybe in like canada and montreal and stuff but yeah far definitely a lot more of that going on out west and even a lot of like the east coast crushers in that way have been doing it out west you know they moved there um and have transplanted yeah i think it's awesome just to be able to do do it in whatever way is working for you um at like our low level, I love seeing what the competition can do for kids in terms of kids getting to meet people from new mountains. Like if they start the program, like, I don't know, would I meet you when you were like six, seven years old? I think you were doing our events, Pivot, like you were young. And like to watch you meet friends and come up and still be in touch with those friends is an awesome, awesome thing. Um, and now I just am still watching that happen with new kids. Like I already have eight year olds that I've been watching do this for five for three years since they were five. And it's, it's adorable. And I think it's really cool that they can get out there and feel success in a way that that's also difficult. It's not just like a participation trophy to go out there. And even if you're only on a podium in a group of three, like you had to do something hard when you're six years old and you're like doing a rail jam and you're falling on steel in front of a hundred people watching you like that's brutal so i'm all about recognizing those kids and i think that's awesome so i love the i love competition at a regional level it's really the hardest thing on me is how high the barrier of entry is and like it's not cheap to be a competitive athlete and it's not cheap to be a competitive athlete in any sport but it's really hard in the ski and snowboard world. And I've watched a lot of really talented kids over the years who just don't have the financial means to do what it takes. And there's just no way they can afford the camps and the travel and the international summer travel also and the competition fees and the gear. And it's, it, it winds up just being so, so much that, that especially at the high level events, like it can be a little bit of a bummer how affluent you have to be to succeed at this point. You have to be able to pay, as my mom likes to say to me, you have to be able to pay to play. Like, if you want to go to Rev Tours, if you want to start doing World Cups, like, yeah, there are people that will sponsor you. But at the same time, like, if you want to go to Europe for the summer to train or if you want to go to XY, like, it's so much money. You really do have to pay to play for snowboarding. And for a lot of other competitive sports, but it's just that snowboarding is year round. No matter if it's winter, summer, fall, or spring, it doesn't matter. You really have to follow the snow. And that's the expensive part. Yeah, yeah. And it is. It's super expensive. I mean, my wife is a public school administrator. I have my, or a, excuse me, a private school administrator. And I have my own small business and do a lot of this work. And I can, say very clearly that a lot of my students over the years that I've worked with both coaching and teaching pay a lot more per season just for their skiing and snowboarding budget than we make as a gross combined income as a couple. So like, it's pretty wild you know, to, yeah. see, to watch someone that has to spend a hundred thousand dollars a year on snowboarding. And you're like, Whoa, what would it be like to make a hundred thousand dollars a year? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really really insane that I was talking more from like the high level competition aspect of kind of like 
all year round, more for like rev tours and Grand Prix and stuff like that. For me, but even from a low level, like look at the snowboarding competitive aspect, or even just from like a weekend warriors type of stand. Like if you don't live by the mountain, you're still traveling to get to the mountain, which is gas money and having a car and finding a place to stay. And like having to buy the gear, like you need a helmet, you need gloves, you need goggles, you need, well, like supposedly need all of this, but really you just need sport. But like to stay warm and to keep your kids safe and all of that, it's really an expensive sport. And as a dad, especially, you're probably like, I know exactly what you're talking about because I have to do this with my kids and being a coach and working at USASA. Like you just see, I feel like this flow of like, and because of the economy, the, like prices are changing so much too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's a big expense for people to be able to do it. And we do everything we can to try and keep the the event fees reasonable. Uh, most of our event fees for USASA in New Hampshire are still, you know, only 40 or 50 bucks, which feels reasonable, but the amount of money that's now happening needing to happen for competitor lift tickets is really varied ever since the pandemic and some of the mountains are still doing it for 40 or 45 bucks, 50 bucks. But like, I just had to pull all of our events from one mountain that wanted $119 for athlete lift tickets on top of their event fee. So to say, hey, it's $149 or $159 to even get on the list for today is a lot, especially if you're doing two events in a weekend. And then you're also looking at doing them next weekend and the weekend after. And yeah, now looking at that from a parent perspective, I'm like, whoa, this this really, really does add up with all to say that there, it is wonderful and it is, it does so many great things for these kids. But that's, that's like kind of my biggest peep with it right now is like, what can we do to reduce that barrier to entry? And I think there are a lot of different organizations like working on that, whether it's like the hoods to woods foundation, or I don't even know so many, there are so many different things that are happening. You know, the burden burden has a program. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. I think Zeb is doing something. Maybe I'm not sure, but I know it's uh, that might be like a little part of it, but I know Burton's definitely doing stuff for it because they asked KMS, they asked the snowboarders at KMS to come out and help with it in the middle of the summer because they were doing something at Killington. So there definitely are people that are trying to help. It's just snowboarding is becoming bigger and which is amazing. Same with Freeski. Oh my God, Freeski boys is insane these days. Yeah, they're out of control. There's so many of them and they're all so good. It's it's bonkers. It's in, I was out for Freeski Nationals and, and that was the first time I'd ever been out for both weeks of Nationals. And there is so many Freeski boys and they are all very good. I, I could not imagine judging them. B could not imagine coaching them. And I, there's just so many of them. I feel like it didn't they change the whole futures thing because of free ski boys is like you have to now like you can't just sign up to get in. You have to like qualify to get in because like it was really who like who signed up first was getting into futures or something like that. I think that is how it's working, but I think there's possible talk of it needing to change. Because it filled so much so quickly this year. I think there's a lot of like data gathering happening right now and stuff in terms of looking at how big wait lists are and how quickly they fill to to kind of figure out how many events is really the appropriate number of them and what the capacities need to look like and do they need to be split into ski and snowboard days and all of those different things. So yeah, I think I think it is still just you sign up first and get in, but I definitely think that there's some information gathering to see if that's the right way to keep going. It's just crazy because when you show up to a futures and some rev tours, it's like, it's always the same girls and you, at least for snowboard girls, it's always the same girls. There's not too many of them. There's like, I'd say in rev, there's probably like, I want to say 25 and in futures, there's like, 18 20 maybe but like that's not changing we're not getting more girls but like all of the sudden free ski blew up and i don't think it's on the women's side in the east coast i think that there is a lack of free ski girls on the east coast because there was three when i went to futures at mount snow last year which was insane 
There were three of them and there were so many frisky boys. Wow. Yeah. But when I went to Chile this summer to compete in a Europa Cup, there were an insane amount of frisky girls. Yeah, there are um, a lot of there are a lot of them out there. I feel like uh I feel like the women's side of things in general is like looking pretty solid with youth. I feel like looking at like even what eight and 10 year old groups and 12 year old groups and 14 year old groups look like, I'm like, oh, sweet. There are a lot of- Oh, it's of, definitely getting bigger. Like, it used to be able to be that you could come and walk on a podium at a USASA event because there might only be two other females in your group or maybe three. Um, but now almost every group is six or seven or nine. And I'm like, yes, now you're having to work for it a little bit. And also you're making way more friends too. Um, and it's just more fun for all of us. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah, when I did USASA in New Hampshire series, I won. There was no one else to compete against me, so I won all the time. And that's why my mom moved me to Southern Vermont because she was like, "Where you're not getting better because you're just competing against yourself. Like, this is such an unrealistic way to look at snowboarding just because there's, there's, there's no other of you. And it was also that my mom wanted me to have friends and to meet well, that were my own age, but also because she just knew that I had such a passion for the sport. So she wanted to give like as many opportunities to like be a part of the snowboard community, but more in an aspect of seeing people my own age in it. And that I'm forever grateful for because now there are more girls. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And the level of ladies riding is crazy right now. It's super high. Um, yeah. To see the tricks that are being done. It's phenomenal yeah it is okay well off of the snowboarding note i could talk about snowboarding forever but (laughs) who have been some of the most positive influential people in your life yeah um so many so many i could talk about influential poets forever so i won't (laughs) but there are a million poets but writers in general like kurt vonnegut is just my favorite writer of all time he has a lot of really cool, weird little doodles in his books, and I have like 20 of them tattooed on me. Carvani is just, he's so funny. He's so kind. Yeah, he's a humanist. He had this quote that says, and I urge you to please notice when you are happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And I have that on a print in my bedroom that I look at all the time. Um, just to like remind me to to really think about it when I have one of those moments that's like so great, or even if it's just okay, just to realize you know this is not so bad. This is pretty good right now. This isn't all right. What's what is? I don't know. I've uh, I've read pretty much everything he's written, and I love that guy. Snowboard wise, I grew up watching like the Wildcat Crew, like Devin Walsh and JF Pelchat. I really loved. I met Travis Parker when I was like fourteen at one of those snow sport events. Uh, expos down in Boston and I thought that was awesome Um, he didn't have any posters but he signed someone else's poster I think it was Bobby Meeks I think he signed a Bobby Meeks poster with his name and he just drew a big pair of skis on it and uh, and a big X through him and I thought that was (laughs) so badass Um, yeah I grew up watching like Travis Rice Jamie Lynn Peter Lyne that was kind of what I grew up thinking was was snowboarding family members my aunt julie my i have a guy named craig who i call my uncle who is not my uncle um but he he pretty much was like my dad growing up in a lot of ways and uh, it's been almost 40 years and i've never seen the guy get mad i like i don't understand how someone can never get mad he's just level and i love it um and he's been like just so loving and kind to me my whole life uh jared derosier jared who who owned the snowboard shack who's just kind of like a local lincoln loon legend over here um i think he was the first adult that i met that i was like wow you're cool you, (laughs) you can still be cool as an adult i don't have to become boring and do nothing but work and be kind of upset about where I've gotten stuck in my life, which I think is what I saw from most adults in my life growing up. Um, and to meet Jared and be like, oh, dude, you're having fun and you have kids. You just run the snowboard shop and 
yeah, Jared's been huge for me. He's he's a great friend. Yeah. Influences. Jeremy Jones, like Big Mountain Jeremy Jones is like my snowboard influence for sure. To watch somebody from the East Coast do what he's done with Big Mountain Riding, I think is just incredible to, to say the least. Um, but also I just think his advocacy is awesome. Like I'm all about supporting Jones just because of what they do with like POW and 1% for the planet and all the different ways that he's an advocate for trying to make it a better world for us all to live in. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's great that he goes and like testifies before Congress about environmental issues and is doing all the work he's doing with protect our winters. So yeah, those are some pretty big influences for me. Yeah, Tara Robillard, who like helped raise me when I was younger, she loved Jeremy Jones. And I didn't really know much about anything on that aspect of things. And Tara, Tara did. And she would talk to me about that. And I'm pretty sure it was Tara. Tara's going to text me after this when she listens to this and she's going to be like, yeah, I love Jeremy Jones. Or she's going to text me and she's going to be like, I never said anything about that. (laughs) So, but I'm pretty sure. I think think you're right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure Tara was pretty big on that train. And I know like they just, they are, they are doing some really good stuff, especially Save Our Winters. They, there are like when I feel like when you see people doing such good things like that, it makes other people want to do th- good things like that. Especially when there's such a there's such a community backing what he's doing. Like there are so many people that are supporting the Save Our Winters like whole mission statement, and so I think that when people talk about environment environmental like anything with the environment and like global warming and stuff like that if you just like bring it back to like save our winters i think that a a lot of snow in a lot of the uh, snowboard community like people can talk about that because there is a lot of talk about like global warming and i feel like when a community or like a big group of people will talk about that like big big emotions will be involved but i feel like with the save our winters impact it's just like I just feel like those like more anger sides or angry sides of the environmental conversation is kind of taken away and it's just more like let's just like do this because we all already love snow and like let's just do this because it's going to keep us on our boards let's do this because it's like for the greater good and I feel like that's something that I really admire from them yeah I think what what they've done there is really cool because yeah protect our winners is absolutely like focused focused how on how outdoor sports athletes make an impact and it's like and it's all sorts of sports athletes like yes it's snowboarders and it's it's first founded by a snowboarder but it's skiers and there are ice climbers and there are famous alpinists and yeah the help they're getting with partner the like partnerships they have with companies like TGR, you know, Teton Gravity Research and like the film projects that they do and stuff, I think is a really good way for them to spread their advocacy and to show how they're putting it into action. Um yeah, all the different split board projects that they do. There's a lot of cool things to to be looking out for there. Yeah, I actually I met him also maybe when I was like 14 or something and had him sign a poster and just this little like oak tag jeremy jones poster it says josh east coast rocks (laughs) and uh and i still have it it's hanging in my basement and it made it through four different years of of plymouth state and it actually like has a crust now from being like knocked off the wall and like probably soaked in slush and uh (laughs) beer and god knows what else during plymouth state years but there are like muddy footprints on it and i i still have it on the wall in the basement it's great you're like someone walks on it you're like like dusting it off you're like oh it's fine just gonna tag it right back up onto the wall that's right put it over the heater let it dry out crisp off <laughs> all good. yeah i definitely i think that there's just a lot to be said about the save our winters the whole thing and i think that just having having a conversation about it especially on a podcast about mental health is good too just because 
it's just talking about things that have a stigma around them. And I think that the Save Our Winters part of that doesn't have a stigma around it, but I think that the global warming conversation about it should be such a bigger conversation, especially from my generation's aspect, especially from the community that I'm a part of, the snow sports community. I feel like I don't hear anybody talking about global warming, like, at all. Yeah, I feel like it's it's bothersome how complacent people have gotten in younger generations about it because I feel like it's something that like my generation grew up a little bit more in fear of and not so much of it's coming real and like so many people are doing a lot to change things in a million ways whether it's cleaning the air or cleaning the water or whatever can be done um and I'm sure there's still a lot of that with your generation and I hope that that is true but it's not something I'm hearing a lot of with the kids I'm working with either it's something I feel to initiate that conversation. I don't talk. I mean, I talk about it with my friends, but like we're not talking about like and we're not talking about it enough or about like for snowboarding to be the thing that all of us for snowboarding or skiing to be the thing that the people that I surround myself care the most in the world about, we should definitely be talking more about global warming and the planet. And I feel like it's not a big conversation. And I wish it was, but I don't, I don't know what, what to do. But now that we're talking about it, I definitely am thinking back to conversations I've had. I'm like, yeah, I really haven't had that many conversations about it. Yeah, things are happening. You know, I, I've been living in my house 14 years and the basement's only ever flooded twice. And it just happened a couple of weeks ago because it, we got six inches of rain in one day in January. Like that's not supposed to happen. It's definitely not supposed to happen here. Yeah, no, maybe in Florida, but not. That should have been three feet of snow. That was crazy. Yeah, that is, it's so crazy. I feel like also Boston. I, I this is the most time I've spent in Boston since I lived here, and I think this is this would have been the third year in a row that Boston hadn't got snow unless it had snowed the other day, and that's that's not normal. We're used to like blizzards and them putting snow in like heated dumpsters. Because they need parking spaces. Right. So I don't I don't know. Way bigger conversation, but at least we're starting the starting to talk about it a little bit. But yeah, we'll get <laughs> Okay. So going back to the ride for mental health part of this podcast, how do you cope if you're going through a rough patch? That's something that I've been starting to ask all of my guests. And you can, some people go really into it and like want to give as many strategies to people to help them. And some people talk about it more on a surface level. And then some people also talk about it like more personally. And so you can take this question however you want. It's really just so that people can understand that talking about mental health is okay. And so I just want to say that before you answer the question. Yeah, cool. I appreciate that. I appreciate you like holding the space for everyone to kind of take that where they feel comfortable taking it. Um, yeah. Had you asked me that like 20 years ago, I don't think I would have given you anywhere near the answer that I'm going to give you, but that's what, that's what life does. I guess you learn stuff and you go through things and you, maybe I'm less nervous to share my own experiences than I've been in the past. So yeah, I think I have a lot of strategies around that. Because I have a lot of days where I don't feel that great. You know, I, I do all right. But uh, yeah, I think right off the bat, I think wellness is enormously important uh, in terms of like sleep, recreation, and diet, like right off the bat. I think if you're not eating healthy food and getting a decent amount of sleep, that you can't really expect your body to feel good. It just doesn't work that way. Your body needs certain things. And when you don't give it to give it what it asks for, um, you're kind of doing it a disservice and you're doing yourself a disservice. So I think those things are really huge. Um, and in terms of exercise, like I always feel better when I get out and do something after I've been feeling down. Um, doing something with like adrenaline, like getting out snowboarding or kayaking or biking is wonderful. But a lot of the times for me, it might be like chopping wood and like carrying it in for for heat, you know? Like it, it might actually be work that the late, that the, exercise manifests itself in but whatever it is i think some sort of physical exercise can be can be really good 
for I, I'm no chemist or psychologist. I don't know what you're releasing there, serotonin or whatnot. Um, but those things feel good for me. Um, exercise, work. Yeah, aside from that, having a good community to rely on and be having people that you can talk to, uh, having people you can call up and say, hey, I'm in a bad place right now. Can we chat? Or maybe it's not even that dark. Maybe it's just want to get out of your house and go for a walk and need someone to go with just having the community to do that with having friends to call and call on yeah i think breathing breathing is huge i'm a horrible meditator i try i've tried i'm super bad at it uh i don't have adhd or add i've been tested recently still again as an adult i got tested <laughs> it but i can't uh i can't seem to focus on my breath as long as i want to but even if i could sit there and do it for like a minute even if i could just do one minute i feel like it's incredibly beneficial okay yeah when i was younger my dad always had me meditate he would just be like sit here for 10 minutes and shut up and try and do this and and i would just be like because oh, my dad's really into meditating. Like, my dad is, like, such a meditate. Like, he, my dad, meditating has really changed my dad from, like, being someone who, like, was more stressed and, like, high energy to someone who now can, like, look at situations from way different perspectives because he's way more calm. And my dad and I run on, like, very same energy levels. So he was super into the meditative thing, and he would try and have me do it with him. And I could not hold it together. I just... I can't do it, but I will try it for like seven minutes. I can do it and then I'm done. And then I'm like, okay, it's time to get up. Yeah, 10 minutes is a long time. It's a really long time. So yeah, even if you can do it for one, if you can do it for three, like that's it, it, like the effects are really good for me. And I think that the science behind even doing it for like two minutes a day shows that it can do a lot for you psychologically. There's a podcast that I love that I listen to a lot called The Happiness Lab. So I would recommend that to anybody, but they have some, their first season has a lot of really great episodes on meditating and on breathing and stuff and on not having to necessarily do it for a long time. But the host is this woman, Dr. Lori Santos. She's at Yale and she taught this course on happiness and it turned out to be Yale's most popular course they've ever offered. And this podcast- I mean, that makes honest. sense. People want to be happy. Dude, this podcast like kind of changed my life. It's really good. You should listen to it. I listen to it in the gardens when I'm working in the summer and it's it's wonderful. But it really like showed me the benefit of even like if I can just do it, if I can go breathe for a minute, like I'm going to feel better. So I think like that's great. Um, yeah, I find releasing music a lot. I don't play music, but listening to music, reading poetry. I think that there's incredible benefits too to just like service. Um, doing something there, there's a lot of science behind what doing something nice for somebody else makes you feel like. And it makes you feel good. There's really no way around that. Um, I was feeling really crappy in the grocery store the other day and I decided to play a game and I'm uncomfortable and I always look away, but I decided the game for the day would be that I would try and make eye contact with as many strangers as I could and just like smile at them and see what happens. And it was great. The amount of smiles I got from people were, were wild. And like there was one woman... <laughs> that it, she looked kind of grumpy at the beginning of grocery shopping. And I smiled at her and she smiled back. She was, she was significantly older than me. And I probably passed her four or five more times in the grocery store. And each other time, she was just like smiling at me before I even got the chance. Not, she was probably like 80 years old. And it was just, it made my day just watching this old lady smile. And that's something really small and easy to do. Um, and it took me from feeling pretty crappy that day to feeling a lot better. Yeah, so service, you know, get out and do it. You can go work in a soup kitchen or something. You can go do, I know you've, you've done mission, mission type work or mission trips, maybe not like religiously, but service trips. And like, I did four yeah, of those. Yeah, I went to Africa. I, yeah. So, so life changing. Oh, my, it was amazing. It was one of the coolest things I've ever done because... I do. I agree with you that service is definitely, there's no way around it. Like you're going to feel better. You're going to feel proud of yourself. You're going to feel good. But I think Africa was a little different just because I feel that I did help people on my trip. But I also think that a huge point of the trip 
was to see a different culture and that made me grateful for what I have. And I think that that was another reason was because we were in like the middle of like African villages that had nothing, like literally nothing. And we were bringing them stuff. Like I, I was playing in a soccer game and I was drinking out of my water bottle and I, everybody came around me. It was hot. It was really hot. Like I should have been drinking out of my water bottle. I was going to faint. And people like came around me who were playing soccer with me. And they were like, they didn't know a lot of English, but they were just like, water, water. And they just kept on repeating water. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has water. Did you guys want water? And no one had ever seen a water bottle before especially not like one that's reusable and that like will last me a lifetime. And I was, it was definitely so eye-opening to just realize that the things that I take for granted, like having a water bottle when I'm doing a strenuous sport to keep myself hydrated and to like be able to just like walk into my kitchen and get fresh water and not have to walk miles and miles to like go pump water and then carry it back on my head. Just like so many things. I was like, oh, wow, I I really do have it way easier than they do here. But their happiness was so different from America. Like what they were grateful for in Africa was like, it was just so, so, so different. Like one of the, when we were there, we had a nurse come with us and she went into homes and she would help people that needed help. And she brought things from America to help them that they didn't already have in Africa. She went into this one place of this woman who had been dying for like eight months. She was non-responsive. She, she was pretty much already dead, but she was, her heart rate was, her heart was still going. She like, dealt with her bed sores. She tried to give her fluids. She tried to like move her around, try and switch her weight. She died the next day. And she had been like in this coma for eight months. And they, she was like, I think that we like made her more comfortable so that she felt like she could like pass on. They were planning to have like a huge football game the next day in the, like with combined of these two villages. And they canceled it to have a day of mourning for this one person who was a part of the village. And it was just like how grateful they were to have everybody they had in their lives was just such, such an impactful experience. Like they didn't like you, like as an American, I want to give them everything that I have because I just feel like I have so much, but they don't want what we have. They don't, they don't want the like, they don't want to just get their water in the kitchen. I'm sure they'd like it to be a little closer some days when they're not feeling so great, but they don't want what we have. They're so happy with what they have and how they live. And if like, I think that if they just really wanted to come to America, they would change more things, but they don't, they don't want anything that we have. And I think that was just the biggest like takeaway that I took from Africa was that they're just so grateful for what they have. And that was a, huge ramble, but I feel I just learned so much from Africa. And that was one of the major things that I took from was that like, they were just so grateful for what they had. And that was something that service, I feel like it can making someone else feel good is so important, but also just realizing how many different perspectives people have on the life that they're given. Yeah, absolutely. Just to be able to see how things could be and how things are for other people. Yeah, it's great you got to have that experience. What country in Africa were you in or countries? Malawi. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, my international travel is pretty limited, but I, I've experienced some things similar to what you're saying. Probably most similarly, similarly in Costa Rica. But also, yeah, I worked with, I worked in a, one of the service projects I did was working with homeless children in St. Louis in a children's shelter there. And like, St. Louis is a murderous city and they have a lot of crime. You know, it's a, it's a tough city. And to just be there when I was 15 and see what my life could have been in, in one way that it's not, there's a million other ways that it could have been. <laughs> but I'm certainly glad to have been raised where I was versus there. Despite all the beautiful things and all the great things and stuff there too. But yeah, also just to see what, what poverty really looks like. You know, I didn't grow up 
loaded and affluent by any means, but I didn't hurt for things and need for things, um, especially a home and warmth and food and water. And to see what that looks like firsthand is a really sad and scary thing. Um, yeah, it's it's scary, but it's also something that I think if you can witness it, that you should because it's so eye-opening and it's so, I just, I have never felt more grateful to just have what I have and to like have such a supportive family and to have such great parents and to like be so close with my brother and just to like, just like know that like my family is so important and the people I surround myself are like, just the things that matter the most to me are not like, physical things they're just like the people that I'm with and like the feelings that I get and I think that that was something that only or not it wasn't only going to Africa could teach me but just like it was something that I hadn't learned yet just because I was younger and I think that going to Africa definitely helped teach me that more yeah yeah it's it's good to try and put yourself in someone else's shoes I think it's a good tip for us all to realize that we'll never really know what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. And like, I've been trying to stop saying things like, oh, I understand. Or I'm, yeah, I, you know, because I don't, you know, I've, tr- I'm tr- I've tried to move to saying I'm trying to understand, or I think I understand, or I, th- I think I can see where you're coming from, but I've never had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people end up talking to me about things that are maybe not things that I've experienced that are hard things. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hear you, but like, I can't say that I know what it's like to, to come from that world. Yeah. I think that where, where I started to learn like the same aspect of like, not completely telling people that you like understand where they're coming from was when I would talk to people about friends or family dying by suicide because We've both lost people to suicide, but it wasn't like we, if I, if, but if I told you that I understand how you feel, like I don't, we both lost, I mean, we both lost Eli, who's the same person, but we've lost different, different people and we both grieve differently and we both process things differently and I'm not in your head and I don't know your thoughts and like, I can see where you're coming from, but I don't fully understand and I don't fully feel the things that you feel and I think that sometimes it's just people feel like more comforted if they know that you're trying to like empathize with them but at the same time you're not trying to be like oh yeah I know exactly how you feel yeah yeah you just nailed it absolutely to show people I'm trying to get it and I'm trying to care and see where you're coming from and and yeah it could be in regards to mental health but I mean I think for me, it ends up coming up a lot with, with maybe race or with gender or, or sexual orientation or anything like that. Like when someone tells me about being bullied for, for something that I've never had to experience, it, I can't say that I understand and I get it because I don't. I can just be like, oh, I can imagine that that must be awful because that's all I can do is imagine that that must be awful. And yeah, yeah, we can go, we, we, have definitely all lost people. It's hard to, it's hard to even think about the amount of people that struggle with day-to-day living. And I, and I mean, I have a therapist. I'm not afraid to say that I go to therapy. I think, I think everybody should go to therapy. I think it's a great thing. I take some medication for my mental health, you know, um, for anxiety and depression. I'm, and I've been working through that with my doctor for for a number of years now. And that can be a tough journey for people too. You know, I've been, there have been at least three meds that I've been after a while have had to be like, this one is not for me. Whether it just turns me into a zombie or, you know, takes away the ability to, to feel happiness, but you can still feel sadness or it takes away this or that, you know, it, it can be hard to find that balance with meds, but I, I think I'm close to been in the past, which is great for me. Yeah, and it's hard to it's hard to lose people. I've had people in my family that have really struggled with their mental health. Um, Eli was not someone that I knew super super well. I knew Eli through events and only just through seeing him at lots and lots of events. And I think the way that I connect mostly mostly with him is because everything he ever said to me was positive, and we always smiled at each other. And I'm like an infectious smiler too. You know, like I can't turn it off. I'm always smiling. 
And that makes people think like, oh, that must that guy must be so happy. That did and then people say that to, you know, whether it's my wife or my parents. They're like, oh Josh, yeah, that guy's so happy. You know, like it can be a defense mechanism. It can be just your natural way of being. And you can be a happy-go-lucky person and not have what's going on inside look like that. And I think that I thought about that and still think about that a lot um, with Eli because his smile is just so beautiful. And he just always said the most goofy things at the top of courses. And uh, he's a fun dude. He's a fun dude to be around for sure. Yeah, Eli was someone who was always smiling especially on his snowboard. Eli was so very happy on his snowboard. And I think that a lot of people that knew him knew him on his snowboard. And which is, it's, I am glad I got to see Eli do something that he loved. When I think about me and Eli's memories, I'm glad I got to share something that Eli and I both loved together. And that, that was something that I knew Eli from. And I feel very lucky that that was something that we got to share together. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to have those things and it's important to have those places where you can uh, where you can find happiness and find that release. But it's also really important to work to try and find that that happiness outside of those places in life too. And that can be a lot harder work. It's a lot harder to stay happy when you're not having fun. It's a lot wow. harder to stay happy when you're injured. It's a lot harder to stay happy during a pandemic. It's a lot harder. They're just things. It's a lot harder to stay happy when we're bombing the crap out of Palestine. There's, you know, we can find a reason every day. There's, it's so hard at times to look over the tough things in the world. Um, but it's a worthwhile endeavor. I think yeah. it's worth looking around for. Yeah, I was just reading a book about eating disorders that was called My Life Without Ed, or My Life With Ed. It's My Life Without or My Life With Ed. It's actually really popular and my therapist recommended it. Yeah, it might, okay, yeah. My therapist recommended it to me because she was like, I think this is something you would like really connect to. So I just finished reading it yesterday. And that was something that she talked about in the book that she would be like, well, why would I get treatment for my eating disorder when there are people that are like going to die because of cancer today? Or there are people that are going to die today because like they're going to get into a fatal car crash. Or there are like refugees around the world. And like, why should I get treatment for this? And like, when there are people that need the doctor's help more. And it's not that, like, I feel like when I try and talk to people about mental health, they're like, well, why would I? I just feel like people just think they they put themselves on the priority list so low. And so yeah. when I try to talk to people about it, I just want it to be like, there's like, first of all, we live in the United States. There's doctors that can help you even though there's a mental health crisis going on right now in the country. Like, if you wait your time, there will be someone to help you. And also through nonprofits like Pride for Mental Health and like SBTS and so many other places, like, there's always going to be people as long as, like, look for the support. But also, it's just that if you, like, are looking for support and your one reason is that there are other people that need more help, that you just have to, like, kind of try and prior be selfish you just have to be selfish you have to be like well i can't help anybody else unless i help myself yeah yeah for sure i yeah there are a lot of resources out there and mental health can be expensive you know i can i definitely struggle with my own insurance and what the copays are and i'm like i beat myself up i'm like do i really deserve to be spending this money on myself i'm like yeah no i do like happiness is worth spending this money on it is it's really it's really hard to be selfish. It's really hard to choose yourself over other people, especially when you're a parent, especially when you're a sibling, especially when you have other people around you that you love and you care about to like put yourself as a number one priority. But I just try and remind people that no matter what, you can't help other people unless you help yourself. If you want to help someone else, you have to help yourself first. Yeah, absolutely. And I... I like at the bottom of my heart believe like we all truly do deserve happiness. Like at the end of the day, like if there's one thing we deserve, it should be that should be able to like feel good about who you are in your own skin. And it can be so hard to do that. But like, I think it's something we should be working for something I'm trying to work for. Yeah. I think everybody should strive for that. Yeah. Okay, Josh. Well, on that note, we did it. We did the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. 
Cool. Yeah, we did it. We went through all your questions. That was awesome. That was fun, Pippa. Thank you for listening to the Tell Me More podcast. I am your host, Pippa Scott. Please subscribe if you like what you're hearing. And don't forget, tell your friends you love them.